You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Brandon, it is good to have you back, sir. It is very, very good to have you back. Uh, for those of you who uh, are new or are guests, my name is Michael. I'm also one of the pastors here, uh, and my vacation starts tomorrow. So looking forward to that. Cannot wait. Uh, so every year, uh, another pastor friend of mine uh, and a group of men from his church, they take a handful of graduating senior young men on a deep sea fishing trip uh, every year, sort of as this like usher you into manhood type thing. And the most recent trip they went on was particularly entertaining for them. Uh, they picked the, the group of young men up. And as young men tend to be, they were quite confident and cocky about the experience they were about to go have. They felt like, hey, we're going to go out here and own the sea of sorts. Now, keep in mind, uh, nary a one of them had ever been out on the open ocean or anything of that sort. But as young men tend to be, they were full of that ego. And they were like, what's the big deal? We're men. We're going to get out there. We're going to catch some big fish. And we're going to own the sea. And for the first little bit, things went sort of how they anticipated it would go. Everything was pretty smooth sailing. They got out on the water. The weather was quite nice, and they were reeling in the big ones. The boys were feeling so good about themselves that they actually even started throwing up Instagram pics of uh, their seaworthiness and the haul they were bringing in. A few hours later, however, and they were throwing up something else. The wind picked up, the water got choppy, and my pastor friend decided to post a few pictures of his own to show all the damage. All the boys deep in the middle of the boat, clutching onto buckets for dear life. Uh, all that unearned ego faded, and the cry coming from all of them was, whatever we got to do, we got to get off this boat. We can't be here anymore. We got to get out of this boat. And here, I don't, I don't know about you, all right, but in my experience, the Christian life and following Jesus can, can sometimes feel a little bit like that, can it? Uh, by that, I mean one minute, everything is smooth sailing. Everything is going just how you thought it would go. Everything is going well. You're on the proverbial mountaintop. Things are going well. You feel like you're thriving. And the next, you find yourself clutching onto something for dear life, contemplating, maybe I need to just get off this ship. Maybe I just need to abandon the boat. Perhaps times when the call to follow Jesus' example of self-denial hits home on some dream or some desire that you really wanted for yourself, when the finances are running low and trusting in God's provision seems like a fool's errand, when we suffer loss or tragedy or our kids, despite our best attempts to parent them faithfully, are wiling out or something of that sort, or perhaps simply when that dreadful sin habit that you've battled for what feels like far too long has won against you yet again, and you just want to throw in the towel on this whole thing. This is the part of, a, of the life of a disciple of Jesus, and one that causes many Christians I know to ask, what do we do when life is anything but smooth sailing? What do we do? How do we handle this? How do we keep pressing forward? Perhaps one of the best case studies we have in this is the life of Paul. Uh, and we've seen this a ton throughout this series. Paul meets Jesus and his life is fundamentally altered in virtually every way imaginable. He goes from persecuting Jesus and his people to being persecuted for Jesus, from hating the church to being hated for her. And the snippet of Paul's journey we're going to look at today is a glaring example of when following Jesus puts Paul squarely in the middle of a difficult circumstance, squarely in the middle of problems and pain. 
If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some located, I think, at the ends of your rows or any some of your seats. Feel free to grab one or open up your phone and turn there. Uh, this is the next to last week in this series in Acts, and it's the next to last chapter in Acts. And this chapter focuses on Paul's journey to Rome to share the gospel. But this trip is anything but smooth sailing. And I mean that both figuratively and literally. So let's look at it together. Now, for what it's worth, this is a long story. And part of the reason for that is Luke apparently is with Paul on this journey. So he's kind of given us all the details and all the play-by-play. But I'm just going to hit the high points. And then at the end, we'll unpack some of what they expose for us. But picking up in verse 1. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So real quick, Paul is a prisoner here. After he said goodbye to the Ephesian church, which we talked about last week, he went to Jerusalem and got brought before some of the authorities there. And he appealed the charges that were levied against him to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. He actually had had the right to do so, which baffled some of the people that he stood before because they thought that he would probably just be let go if he had let things ride. But Paul wanted to share the gospel in Rome. He was determined to get the gospel to Rome and saw this whole thing as an opportunity for that to happen. Verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea. Now, the journey to Rome was not a quick trip. It wasn't as simple as hopping in a van and hitting the highway. The quickest way was to go by sea, but going by sea carried inherent risks of its own. To give you some perspective, um, do you all remember that old reality TV show, Deadliest Catch? Anybody with me? Yeah, so think a little bit like that but worse, okay? Uh, it, was, it was a show about crab fishermen in the northern seas. It was a very scary job. It's a bit, being out on the open ocean is a bit like that in this time, but worse, because there was no such thing as a weatherman. There was no such thing as a storm, as storm tracker tech or GPS, no coast guard or helicopters to come save you if you got in trouble. If you were going to make the journey, it was just you, your crew, and your wits. That's all you had at your disposal. In fact, in the ancient Near East, the sea was often referenced in literature as this foreboding place and used as a metaphor for chaos and destruction for this very reason. You can make boats, sure. You can learn to navigate by looking at the stars, but you could not tame or conquer the sea. The sea most often conquered you. And that's exactly where things are about to go. Let's look at verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snittis. And I have no idea if that's actually how you say that. I've never seen CNN put together like that before. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, uh, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will, uh, will be with injury and much lost. Do not go, not only of the cargo and, and the ship, but of our lives, but also of our lives, which just seems so polite for a prisoner, doesn't it? Like, excuse me, sirs, but if we keep going, we're all gonna die. Could we, could we maybe rethink these plans? Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, because of course he would. Like, what does Paul know about sailing, right? And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So this is the proverbial, mm, that gas station looks sketchy. I think we got enough to make it to the next exit, even though it's re- your dash is reading E and the zero miles is on your, uh, on your screen. 
you know exactly who you are, let's be honest. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. So they think they're in the clear, verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and it gets bad, like bad, bad. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They're getting desperate, and the situation goes from bad to worse. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, like, can you just imagine how horrifying of a storm that is, that there's no sun and no stars for days because the storm has just swallowed them up. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is how bad it had gotten. They see the writing on the wall. These men who have made their livelihoods sailing the sea recognize their situation. They know they're done for. The prisoners know it. The professional sailors know it. The soldiers know it. They all know it. And they are prepared to give up. All except for Paul. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Even Paul can't let a good I told you so go, apparently. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only to the ship. For For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So here in the midst of the storm, in the midst of this seemingly hopeless situation, we find Paul unshaken and unfazed. He's confident in the face of these very distressing circumstances. He's confident in God and what God has told him and God's purposes for him and encourages the men around him to trust in this God as well. And we, we don't know how all of them responded, but we do know that things didn't immediately improve. And at least some of the sailors didn't initially believe that Paul's God would in fact come through. Look at verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, meaning they were trying to sneak off, they were trying to abandon ship and leave the others behind. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go, which on the one hand makes some practical sense. Like if the sailors don't stay, practically speaking, the rest of them can't handle the boat. But on the other hand, he is once again calling everyone in the boat to trust because it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm in, but keep your options open, right? And it's a whole nother thing to say, I'm in, so I'm cutting out the backup plan. I'm cutting out the escape route. And Paul is saying, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to make it through this, you got to cut the backup plan. You got to be all in. So this action by the soldiers is in some respects a definitive sign of trust. They're choosing to believe Paul and trust in his God. We're cutting the escape boats so there's no way out. We are ride or die now. Either this is going to go how Paul says, and his God is going to save us, or we die. There is no other option. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. 
The bow, stru- uh, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, because obviously he sees that Paul and his God are the ones they have to thank for not dying, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, admittedly, this is quite the story, isn't it? It's a wild and stressful series of events. And I don't, I don't know what immediately jumps off the page to you, but the thing that jumps off the page to me is the difference, the difference between the type of person Paul is re- re- revealed to be and the rest of the crew. Paul's posture and Paul's demeanor through this whole ordeal and that of everyone else around, around him. Namely, when the storm hits and the waves start rocking and the wind gets crazy, the rest of the crew is full of fear. They don't eat, they don't sleep, they start throwing things overboard and eventually completely lose all hope, some even resorting to attempting to abandon ship just to look out for themselves. And yet Paul displays a completely different posture. He's full of faith, he's confident and calm. At times, he even seems unfazed by the circumstances that they find themselves in. Paul is basically the definition of what Edwin Freeman calls a non-anxious presence someone who is calm in the chaos. When the situation gets dicey when, uh, or difficult, when suffering or hardship or stress come their way, a person who's not detached from others or doesn't disengage from the situation, but actually seems to rise to the occasion. It's not that they aren't affected by the situation or don't feel the difficulty or pain of it, but rather appear to be grounded in something bigger than the present moment that enables them to think clearly and calmly and confidently about what's going on. To put it bluntly, in the face of the storm, what we see from Paul here is that Paul is an anchor. In the face of the storm, Paul is an anchor. And the question that ought to naturally arise is, how? How is it possible? Like, put yourself on the boat for those moments. What would your disposition be? Like, what would you be thinking and feeling? I'll tell you what I would be thinking and feeling. I would be freaking out, all right? Like, utterly, utterly freaking out. Yet that is not what Paul displays. How is it possible when everything seems like it's falling apart and death is at hand for him to have such calmness and confidence and faith? How is it possible for him to endure such trauma and come out on the other side? How is it possible for Paul, a prisoner on this ship, to become the voice that everyone else listens to in a time of crisis? And for that matter, if these things can be true for him, how is it possible that they might also be true for you and I as well? How is it possible that they might be true for us too? And if you were paying careful attention, you saw the answer right there in the middle of the text. You can look back at it if you want. In the middle of the night, when the storm starts blazing, Paul is visited by an angel and notice what he says in verse 23. He says, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. You see, the reason Paul is the way he is in the midst of these circumstances is that he knows two things. He knows whose he is and he knows where he's going. He knows who he is, and he knows where God has said he is taking him. And that is all the anchor that Paul's soul 
ever needs. The raging sea doesn't bother him because he belongs to and worships the God who created the sea. The storm doesn't get to him because he belongs to and worships the God who created the storm. And bigger picture, he knows he belongs to, belongs to and worships the God who has a history of calming both. He knows the God who rules over all creation. Now through Jesus calls him his own child. He knows this God is full of love and grace and holds his life forever in the palm of his hands. And he knows where this God intends to take him. The angel tells Paul that God has determined that he's going to Rome. And I think that's an important nugget because it certainly doesn't look like it's gonna be the case in the present situation, does it? In fact, the journey looked nothing like what they thought it would. All sorts of problems, all sorts of fears, all sorts of obstacles came their way. But God has told him what is going to lie on the other side. And knowing these things frees Paul up in the face of difficulty. It frees Paul up to trust God with whatever is in front of him. Even though he likely doesn't understand why the journey is going this way, why they've been faced with a difficulty in front of them, he's freed up to trust God's timetable and God's schedule come what may. If all of this is in God's hands, not Paul's, then he can take heart in the fact that nothing is going to stop God's purposes from happening, even in uncomfortable, painful, and traumatic situations. And notice, it frees him up to act. None of what Paul Paul knows to be true about God causes him to be passive or sit back and say, well, it's in God's hands now, so I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the ride. Rather, it's, it's the very thing that causes Paul to step into the situation to help and direct and encourage, not because there's anything inherently special about him, but because he's confident in, the, in God. And that removes whatever fear he may have had to step into the middle of difficulty for the sake of others and the glory of God. So I wanna talk about this with us for a moment, okay? And talk about what these things mean for you and I and what we face in life. Because see, you see, here's the thing about storms, metaphorically speaking. The times when discomfort or hardship or pain hit ground zero in our lives, the times when bad things happen, when the bank account runs dry, when that relationship ends, when you suffer loss or tragedy, when life feels overwhelming and you just want to throw in the towel, whatever it may be for you. The thing about storms is that they tend to reveal who we really are. They tend to reveal some very real things about us. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and I've loved this. He says that if you want to know what your basement is like, you have to surprise it. And I know that sounds weird, so let me explain. In other words, if you want to know if there are like rats and cockroaches and all sorts of like creepy crawly things down in your basement, you don't go down there deliberately, right? You don't come, come to the top of the steps and announce, all right, I'm going down into the basement now. Rattle the doorknob, open it up slowly turn the light on and clear your throat and walk down the steps with a lot of loud banging noises or anything like that. If you do that, you'll get down there and you'll see that everything is just fine. And you'll say, oh, look, everything is in order down here. We have no problems at all. No, if you really want to know what's going on in your basement, you have to surprise it. You have to run to the door. You have to throw it open. You have to turn on the light quickly and leap to the bottom of the steps. And then you'll see all these little awful things that you wish were not there scurrying around making a mess of your home. You'll know what's really down there. C.S. Lewis is saying that we are essentially a bit like that. When everything is nice and orderly and at peace, it's very easy to think of ourselves as a person of faith or a person who believes that this world is not all there is, or that we have a hope coming for us on the other side of death, or a person uh, who trusts in God's provision, security, and salvation over and above everything else. But if we really want to know what we believe about God, if we really want to know what we trust or what we have faith in, 
what we really believe brings security and safety and peace and hope to our lives, if we really want to know who we are, then just let the worst thing in life happen to you. Just let the bottom drop out. Let the storm come. Then you'll know. It doesn't happen when you can deliberately act in a way that you want to think of yourself or as you want other people to think of you, but when your instincts and your reflexes are engaged, when you find yourself at the rope's end, when the worst thing happened, when your comfort, safety, and sense of security get ripped from your palms, that's actually when you can see your life the most clearly. Storms tend to reveal whatever our souls are actually tethered to. That thing that if we lost it, we believe we just couldn't go on. That thing we believe really provides and secures us. And the point here being the only thing that can actually get us through the most difficult of circumstances is Jesus, because he's the only thing that can't actually fail. Our health can go away, even with us being unaware of it. All it takes is one phone call to change the game. Money can be gone with the next economic recession. Relationships can break down and be lost. And when we've hung our hat on those things or others, when they have become the life life raft, so to speak, to get us to shore, we set ourselves up to be swallowed by the storm. A pastor I know a number of years back went through a cancer diagnosis. Really, really scary stuff. But I'll never forget the one thing he said after going through it all. He said, I'd never want this for myself or anybody else. And I never want to go through it again. Without question, this is not how God intends for life to go. But if there is one good thing that came from it, it's that I found out I, I really believe all this stuff. I really believe it. I really believe that Jesus is who he is. I really believe that he is making all things new. I really believe that he is my only hope. And when I heard that, I'll be honest with you, I was so inspired. And and at the same time, I thought, man, I really hope that's me too. I hope it's me. I realized over the past year or so uh, that left on my own, I am a person, and maybe some of you can relate. I am a person who deeply struggles with anxiety and fear particularly over things that I can't control, whether that be my health. I've told you guys plenty of times, I've always been like a little bit of a hypochondriac, like not like a major hypochondriac, but a little bit. It's real. I have fear over my health or my kids realizing that they're individuals and I can't just make them be who I want them to be or my house. I can't control when the dishwasher breaks or a leak springs in the plumbing or whatever it may be. And when I'm not rooted in the reality of God's loving rule and reign over my life, I can spiral. I can absolutely spiral. And maybe you do too when the bank bank statement is not where you want it to be or when your parenting seems like it's only driving your kids further and further away or when sin rears its ugly head again and again in your life. We need God in these moments. We need God for more than these moments. The truth is, is that following Jesus will often actually take us into the storm. That's a category we have to have. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that, you're, that following Jesus is definitely going to lead to your worst of worst days, but I do mean that difficult, uncomfortable, and exposing situations and circumstances will come as we follow Christ. It did for Paul, it did for the disciples, and at times it will for you and I as well. Following Jesus with our relational and sexual desires, however it looks in your life, to say no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit when it seems like everyone else is telling you differently, when the world says you will only be complete, if you give yourself, if you give in to what your body wants, that can feel not just difficult, but darn near impossible, like a storm. 
Following Jesus with our finances, being open-handed with what we've been given and giving him what he asks will more than likely lead us to forgo certain things. It'll lead us to lower our status of life, to elevate the status of others. And that is not just difficult, it feels impossible, painful even. Following Jesus into his mission may get you strange looks. You may be called backwards or regressive. You may get yourself canceled by culture. In some places of the world, it can even lead to your death. Listen, I don't want to make light of any of those things. Those things can feel like a real storm when they hit our lives. And just like the others, when these circumstances hit, it can be tempting to want to jump ship. It can be tempting to want to abandon ship, to throw in the towel. And what I'm learning is that the key to facing the storm, whatever it may be in your life, the key to coming out on the other side, like Paul, is deep within our hearts knowing whose you are and where you're going. The key to making it through is knowing whose you are and where you're going. You know, when suffering strikes, we often think, no, what I need is answers. What I need is reasons. What I need is understanding the bigger plan. And sure, some of that is helpful. Paul even gets some of that in this passage. But at the end of the day, that is not enough. And I want you to hear that. That is never going to be enough for you. What you need is to know that there is a God to whom you belong and who belongs to you. A God who has made you and given himself to you. And a God who has made a way that no matter what happens, no matter how bad things get, no matter how broken and difficult and painful the circumstances may be, he has determined that they will not be the final story for you. They will not be the determining thing of your life. A God who promises like he does in Revelation 21 that one day every tear will be wiped away and sin and death will be no more. And a God who has promised through the resurrection of Jesus to get you there with him forever if you would just trust him. A God who promises like in Romans 8 that he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not just some things, not just the easy things, but all the things. When life caves in on you, when the storm hits, whether it's an unexpected cancer diagnosis, the difficulty of obedience and faithfulness to Jesus, an economic downturn or something in between, you need more than a sentimental Jesus sitting beside you stroking your hand, explaining to you that there is a silver lining or giving you silly platitudes about how things that don't kill you make you stronger or whatever it may be. You need a God of infinite glory who sits on the throne of the universe, who has promised to marshal every molecule in the universe in pursuit of his plan and your good, who regardless of if you ever understand why what is happening to you is happening, stands behind your salvation and will let nothing stand in its way. That's what you need. What you need is to know a God that of this magnitude loves you and holds your life firmly in his hands and will not let you go, no matter what, no matter what. That's what you need. That's what I need. And that's exactly who God is. And I'll be clear, I don't understand everything that God is doing in my life, and I probably won't until, Jesus, until I meet Jesus face to face. I will probably never understand why certain storms come into my life and why others didn't. But what I do know is that God has revealed to me clearly his intentions in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. In the cross, we see what is arguably the most astounding and confusing action that our God would ever take. We see him willingly enter suffering. We see him willingly enter the storm. On the cross, he did more than promise to fix our pain. He immersed himself in it. Even when things looked like they were out of control, they really weren't. And if there was ever a time that felt like God was not there or God did not care or that God wasn't in control, it would have been when Jesus was crucified. 
But now, however, we know that the opposite is what was true. We know that there was never a time when God was more in control than those moments. He took the worst, the most inexplicable event in human history and turned it for his glory and our good. You see, Jesus was the ship run aground and broken to save us. That's who he is. And he did it all in love. And that is what is so fascinating about Christianity. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that claims that their God has done this. Only Christianity says God is with you. He's with you. Only Christianity says God lost a son so that he could bring you into his presence. Only Christianity said God has been tortured. God has been rejected. God has lost friends. God has suffered injustice. Only Christianity says God has been through the storm and come out on the other side to bring you through it too. Point being, he has been there with us. He's been there with us. He has been right there with us through it all. And not only has he been there, but through his spirit, he is here right now in whatever your present situation may be. If you are a believer in Jesus, he has attached himself to you permanently so that whatever you are going through, whatever storm you may be facing, you are not in fact facing it alone. You are not by yourself. He's not standing far outside beyond whatever your real anxiety producing circumstances may be, but he's with you, alongside you, and in you in the midst of them. And because of his resurrection, you can know with confidence that the journey won't end there. You can know where God is taking you, that regardless of whatever happens in this life, he's got a plan that he is gonna deliver on, that this life is not gonna be the final story for you, but one day he's gonna deliver you to heaven's shores. That is coming for you if you are in Christ. So no matter what gets thrown at you, no matter what storm happens, even if it ends in death in this present life, it's not gonna be the final story for you. It's not gonna be the end all be all, but a better day is coming. Deliverance and salvation and safety are promised from God and his resurrection proves it. And when you know that this is who God is, it frees you. It doesn't free you from the pain or the hardship. It didn't for Paul, but it frees you to face the storm, whatever the storm may be. As a verse uh, from one of John Newton's old hymns proclaims, and I love this. He says, his love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. By prayer, let me wrestle and he wilt perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. I love that last line, especially with Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm, knowing that Christ is in the boat with me, that he will not let me go. It gives me all the strength that I need to press on. And just like Paul told the crew that their only shot to make it to shore was to stay in the boat, that is what we do too. When life is anything but smooth sailing, the encouragement for us is stay in the boat. Stay in the boat. Stay with the one who can deliver. Stay with the one who has promised to get you where he intends for you to go. Stay with the one who is with you through it all. Trust Jesus. Trust who he is. Trust what he says because we belong to him and he to us and he is going to take us exactly where he intends for us to go. So listen, I don't know every story in the room this morning. I don't know what proverbial storms you've come in here facing today. 
and how particularly difficult they may or may not be for you. But, but to end our time, I just want to kind of talk to us for just a moment, and this is sort of where we'll land the plane. Maybe you're not a believer here this morning, and the storm has hit. And so you've come to church because you don't know what else to do. Listen, we are so glad you are here. We are so glad you are here. I love the way that Pastor Tim Keller talks about all of this because he says the one thing that storms really reveal to us is that deep in our hearts, despite what we may say, we're all actually God knowers and God needers. No matter what we tell yourself, no matter what you tell yourself, no matter what you say deep down inside, what storms reveal is that we know there is a God and storms cause us to want to reach out to him. <laughs> the way I've heard people put it is like everybody prays when the bottom gets dropped out. Storms have this ability to help us see that, man, we need him. We need him to save us. We need his help. We need his comfort. We need his presence. Storms bring that out. And I want you to know that the promise of this God to attach himself to you, to be with you through it all, is for you. If you would turn from sin and trust in him for salvation, he gladly stands ready to give you himself. And he is the boat that will get you through. In fact, he is the boat who, is gonna get, who, who will get you through the storm to end all storms that you may not even be aware of, your sin against him, rightfully deserving God's justice and wrath. He is the boat who, is, who will provide your protection and salvation if you would trust in him. Trust that his body was broken for you and his life offered up to deliver you. But maybe you're a believer and the storm has rocked you. Maybe you're suffering and hurting for one reason or another this morning. The encouragement to you is Paul's encouragement to the men. Stay in the boat. He's with you. And while I don't know the reasons why the storm has come into your life, the one thing I know is that he loves you. The cross of Christ proves this to us, and he will get you to the other side. Maybe obedience for you feels like a storm right now. Pursuing the things that Jesus has called you to feels not just like the last thing you want to do, but a painful thing to do. Stay in the boat. As I try to tell you all the time, with the things that God wants for us, what he calls us to, he is never trying to take any good thing from us, but he is only trying to give good to us. Stay in the boat. It is for your good. The journey may look different than you expected and you wanna jump ship. But hear me, though there may be twists and turns that you never saw coming, God is going to get you where he plans to take you. Stay in the boat and he will bring us safely to shore who he is. It's what he does. Let's trust him.